This episode of Propaganda is sponsored by She's Beautiful When She's Angry. The first documentary about the women's liberation movement, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, is a critically acclaimed film that's now available to own. Featuring the women who made change happen then and continue to bang the drum of equality today. Look for it on DVD, iTunes, Amazon Video, and wherever you watch movies. She's Beautiful When She's Angry.com. This is Propaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. There's this mean phrase that's thrown at feminists sometimes when we get mouthy. On Facebook, on Twitter, in real life, something entitled Dudes Yell with Surprising Frequency is, Get back in the kitchen! For generations, the kitchen was seen as women's fear in the home. Women have been, and remain, the primary cooks for themselves and their families. But out in the world, in restaurants and in commercial kitchens, it's a different story. In kitchens where people are being paid cash money to slice, dice, and saute, men dominate the positions of power. The restaurant industry in the United States is marked by a profound racial and gender imbalance. Studies of labor economics of kitchens show that white men are overwhelmingly more likely to be working in the highest paying chef and bartending jobs. That doesn't mean women don't work in restaurants. In fact, 52% of all restaurant workers are women. But the jobs they get are mostly serving jobs, lower paid jobs that rely on working for tips that come at the whim of customers. The same goes for Latino and African-American workers, who are more often employed as lower-paid bussers or food runners than as flashy, powerful chefs. That dynamic is what we'll be chewing on during today's episode, featuring three chefs talking about the foods they love and issues around identity, sexism, and racism in the kitchen. Yep, this is a podcast where we will discuss both Putinesca and the patriarchy. We have interviews with recent Top Chef star Karen Akunowitz, writer and chef Saleho, and one of the country's only female sushi chefs. Bon appetit. Also during the episode, we are going to play a little game that I made up. So one of my minor obsessions is new foods. The way food companies like Nabisco and General Mills are constantly testing out new flavors and inventing new products that combine flavors in truly unholy ways. For example, there is a kind of gogurt, which is a portable low-fat yogurt in a tube, that mixes neon pink strawberry and green apple in a tube. Did I mention it's in a tube? Lay's has a new flavor of chip called barbecue ham. There are cinnamon sugar Cheetos. The world of newly invented snacks is truly a cutting-edge frontier. So here to play this game is associate editor and snack enthusiast, Amy Lamb. Hi, Amy. Hi. <laughs> you love snacks more than the average person, I would Yes, think. I am a snack connoisseur. Mm. Okay, well, <laughs> you're about to get a lot more adventurous in your snack game. Um, because this is a game I made up called Snack Judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I have in this bag... Um, four snacks that did not exist when I was a kid. So these are relatively new inventions, entirely new pieces of the snack culinary landscape. And you're going to close your eyes and I'm going to give you one of the snacks and you're going to try it and tell us what it tastes like and then try to guess what it is. Okay. Um, if you're not paying attention to the snack world, snacks have gotten like pretty wild <laughs> since I was a kid. They're making flavors left and right. So some of these are going to be a little weird. Yes. Are you feeling okay? I'm feeling good. I actually um, thought ahead and I brought some napkins in case I need to spit anything out. Also, uh, a final caveat is I know both both you and I try to eat vegan most of the time. Yeah. But the world of cutting edge snacks is not very vegan friendly. So some of these are, are not vegan. There's no meat in here. I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> That's too far. <laughs> um, so you ready for your first snack? Yes. I, I'm, I'm willing to put myself on the line for this. Okay. Close your eyes. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Sounds like a big bag. Mm-hmm. Okay. Reach your hand right in there. Okay. Oh, this is a chip. All right. This, this is a big chip. I, need, I really need to lean away. Hold on. <laughs> it's like, it tastes like salty, like ranchy, but... I think it might be this this chip that I've had before. It's supposed to be like um, biscuits and gravy. That's what I think it is. This is a Kettle Brand chip called Cheddar Beer. Mm -hmm. How mm. is it? Is it as gross as I would think it was? No, it's actually really good. Oh, wow. Yeah, I actually don't taste the beer stuff in it. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's more to sell the product. 
You know what though? Let me t- let me. I'm gonna just lay, lay down some real talk about kettle chips. So I'm a huge fan of the kettle kettle brand chips. And when you go down an aisle, it's like they literally have I want to say four shelves worth of it, and um, they they're really going bonkers with the different flavors. But oftentimes, half of them end up tasting the same. Like I I want to say there's three other flavors that taste just like this so from what's, kettle brand. What's your verdict? Snack judgment. Cheddar beer ke- kettle chips. It's meh. Meh. (laughs) Well, we've only got three more snacks to go. So stay tuned to the rest of the show. Amy will be sampling these snacks throughout the rest of the episode. On the Bravo TV show, Top Chef, real-life chefs are invited onto a soundstage and duke it out with their cooking skills. Their dishes are judged not by customers, but by an intimidating panel of judges. This year on the very popular Bravo show, chef Karen Akunowitz made a splash. She's an outspoken queer femme chef who for almost five years has been the executive chef at celebrated Boston restaurant Myers & Chang. Bitch's director of strategic engagement, Kate Lesniak, got the chance recently to visit that restaurant and talk with Karen. She was a little starstruck. Hi, Kate. Hi, Sarah. So you went to Boston. You actually got to go to Karen's restaurant. What's the restaurant like? It's super cool. It's kind of like in a hip part of town. um, And everybody was just preparing for brunch service that day. So, you know, people are really milling about the restaurant. People were like doing their thing, getting things done. And Karen was like clearly the boss of everything happening. So... So obviously Karen's on national TV, but how is she different than you expected her to be when you actually got the chance to talk to her? Well, I think, you know, like when a character profile gets built up on a reality television show, it's only scratching the surface. But one thing that I was really excited to find out is that Karen is as much of a person who gets things done and kind of does everything from start to finish um, on TV as she was kind of in person. And so I just like that kind of attitude of like, I'm not too good for anything, and I'm here to kind of, like, just get the project done. Cool. Well, let's listen to the interview. Cool. Did you cook growing up? Like, how did you get into cooking? Like, why are you a chef? Um, I didn't cook growing up. Uh, my mom likes to tell everybody that I couldn't boil water. I just wasn't. I mean, like, I would help her make dinner, right, because you live, as my mom always put it, you live in this house, therefore you... You know, you, like, make your bed and you yeah. mow the lawn and clean the bathroom and you help with dinner. But I didn't grow up cooking, and it wasn't something I like to eat. And I, you know, love sitting around with my family and having dinner and talking and all that stuff. But I didn't grow up cooking at all. I started cooking... Um, in my 20s. And I started cooking to impress a girl. I was <laughs> <laughs> I was working, I was actually working two jobs. I was working at Planned Parenthood during the day and I was working as a bartender at night. And I was working with someone who I kept trying to get to take me out on a date. After a couple of weeks of this, I, I changed it to, hey, you should come over to my house and I'll cook for you. Uh-huh. Right? Which is magic. Right? Tell anybody that you're going to make them a meal. And all of a sudden, she was like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely come over. <laughs> so I couldn't cook at all. Good idea, Karen. Yeah, super. And super, super well thought out plan. Um, so I like went to the bookstore. I bought a cookbook. And I made putanesca, right? Which is... I can't I, even typically pronounce that word, so... Yeah, it, well, it translates to, like, the whore's pasta, because the, the story about it is that um, it's what... it's You throw it all together, and it would it was what the ladies of the night would make in the, the like, the whorehouses, and they would, like, call out that dinner was ready, and that was kind of the, the way that you drew the men into the into the brothels. Yeah, right. That's the Dude, way. I don't know. That's what they were looking for. That's, that, that, that's, that's great. I, yeah, that's what I hear. So anyway, so I think that it was, I think it was bad. I think that I made this, this pasta, this pasta sauce. Mm-hmm. It has tons of like capers and olives. And I think I didn't mm-hmm. like rinse any of the capers. I think it was probably really salty. I think it was probably not good, but I thought I was, you would have thought I, I was like a master chef. I was like, I'm amazing. I'm so good at this. <laughs> so is that, that's when you knew that you that were was, like, that was like, that was the minute that was when I started cooking. And, um, I spent, you know, maybe a year just like cooking at home and thinking that I was really good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And probably about a year later or so, uh, same same girl who had became my girlfriend, joint bank account, two cats, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Yeah, I was applying to get my MSW and um, and go back to school. She was kind of like, I don't know why you're applying to social work school because all you ever talk about is what you're going to do when you open your own restaurant. Yeah. And I applied to culinary school like two weeks later. If you look at any event or you look at a list when there say there's 20 chefs on it mm-hmm. you're gonna have one or two women every yeah. time yeah. and everybody says oh you can't look at it that way but I do I count all of the time to mm-hmm. see how we're represented yeah. um, and it is everyone says it's different now it's changed it's changed a little it hasn't changed that much um, when I came to work here when I took over the kitchen here I had a line cook who um, the second I took over as the executive chef, I didn't come in as a, as a cook. Um, he was a line cook here. The second week I was here, he tried to ask me out on a date. He grabbed my ass. Mm-hmm. And this is here. This is here. Oh yeah. Okay. He left about two weeks later. Right. And stated the reason that he was leaving was because he wanted to work for a real chef a big-time chef, somebody with a name who was still in the kitchen that he could learn from. So, again, putting that back on me for not being, right, good enough. A dude. Not being a dude. Yeah, not being a dude. Um, I definitely think that as I was younger, as I was a sous chef, as I was a line cook, um, I definitely took a a stance of being being a really hard line mm-hmm. um, and just be yeah definitely being aggressive and definitely of course I got called a bitch mm-hmm. um, which I never think is a bad thing well um, you're just probably a leader very right. smart you know we did call our magazine that <laughs> right 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 yeah. exactly um, and people just being like wow I, I got so much uh, flack and still do for for being a bitch for being um, really clear on what I want um, for having really high standards for holding people to those standards and it's incredible how that is perceived when you're a woman as opposed to when you're a man and I for the most part didn't care and that's that's the line I took as I get older as I have more responsibility more responsibility to my staff um, and just what I want for myself and the way that I want to lead I think I probably have I I know that I take more of a road the road of being the moral compass because I think that's important. That being said, there's no, there's no doubt Mm -hmm. that like you, that I am the leader in the kitchen and that, you know, I'm always going to be the one to, to call you out and expect more from you and still have those high expectations. People are like, oh, you're everybody's mom. And I'm always like, I am not your mother. Uh, <laughs> I'm the chef. I'm a partner at this restaurant. I'm your boss. I'm your colleague. I'm your coworker. Yeah. I'll be your support. I'll be all of those things, but I'm not a parent in any way. And I, I had a line cook who actually got hired when I was um, filming the show, mm-hmm. when I was filming Top Chef. And he said to one of my sous chefs, I can't wait to meet her. It's going to be like um, the mom I, I didn't have or like something like that. And I was like, oh, and I think he was like, oh, you don't you don't know Garen that well. Um, so I think that's the like the third trope or whatever you want to call it of, yeah, of, of being course. a female chef is that you're going to be really maternal yeah. and really nurturing and everyone's going to be your babies. And like, that's just not. No, that's not that's, that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So along that line, what do you think um, the industry could do to encourage more women who might be thinking about wanting to get in the kitchen professionally? Because we all know that women are in the kitchen at home. Mm-hmm. Um, what what can the industry do to encourage folks to get into the kitchen and really make a career out of it? What, what can change? I think one of the things that, you know, this is a very boring answer, but one of the things in the industry that can change now is is the structure of it, the um, your benefits your time off, your parental leave. Uh, I'm really big right now on the um, the culture around having a kid. Uh, many women want to have children. Many of those women who want to have children are going to have those birth those children themselves, right? Yeah. Um, if you are in a job that says you are not going to come back to the same job that you were in, whether you're a sous chef or whether you're a chef, um, you don't have maternal leave or parental leave, right? You don't have that paid leave. Or maybe it's, if you're lucky, six weeks. Yeah, wow. Right? Which is not enough time. Absolutely not. I agree. Um, 
you have, you are seeing large amounts of women drop out of the industry because of that. Yeah. You, without a way to get back in, without a way to get back in. And people are going to say, oh, you've been out of the kitchen for this long. You haven't worked in this long. Oh, you have a family. Oh, you need to be home to pick your kids up from work. Oh, you need to X, Y, and Z. So I think systemically those things need to change. I think that there needs to be around time off, paid time off, just having, I try very hard to create in my kitchen a a culture that it's like, you have two days off in a row and you know what they are. Yeah. Um, You know, for my sous chef and things like that, like my sous chef, Ashley had the same two days off in a row for two years. She knew when her days off were, she could plan her life. It's not that much to do or to ask for, um, making sure that people have health insurance and benefits. Um, I think that those things would go, um, would go so far to not even just, uh, getting women into the kitchen, but keeping and retaining really great talent, um, that, that we're not seeing, that we're not seeing stay. Yeah. That, that's a great answer. And it's so, it's so interesting. I mean, obviously the systemic things are the same in any industry, but especially it seems like here in the kitchen. Well, we're kind of running out of time. So I just want to make sure that I let you have your moment before you have to cook. Are you cooking today? Do you have to cook every day? All day. All day. Um, right now I am, I'm in the kitchen seven days a week, lunch and dinner. Everyone keeps coming in and being like, Oh wow. That's badass. I don't know how you do it. And I'm always, uh, my, my answer is always like, where else would I be? <laughs> like, this is who I am. Like, this is what I do. I'm out the trash. I'm sweeping the sidewalk. It's very glamorous. And, you know, that's that's the reality of it is that it's not. And Bravo's following you around for all of it. Right. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> well, it's not. It's like people are like, wow, you're on TV. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm going through the dumpster and picking up the boxes that didn't get broken down. And I'm tasting the kanji that's up on the station. And I'm going to go train a stage and work with somebody else. And, you know, yeah. life just keeps going on. And it's, 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 you know, they don't call it work for uh, for no reason. Yeah. yeah. That was Kate Lesniak talking with Chef Karen Akunowitz. If you want to actually try her food, go check out her Boston restaurant, Myers and Chang, and you can catch her on the current season of Top Chef on Bravo. We have exciting news. So many of our propaganda listeners wrote in to ask how you could support the show that we created a brand new Beehive membership level, the Podcast Pollinators. Join fellow listeners as a member of the Podcast Pollinators, and when you do, you will receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews delivered straight to your inbox. Become a podcast pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. That's bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. All right, this is Sarah. I'm back here with Amy for second round of Snack Judgment. <laughs> You're so serious. <laughs> Amy, how are you feeling about Spice? Um, oh, I'm kind of a spice baby. Like, I'm not a huge fan, but like I said, I'm willing to put my taste buds on the line for this. Okay, so close your eyes. Okay. <laughs> this is so intense. Second snack. <laughs> this is like way more intense than it should be. Okay, where are they? Just stick your hand right. right in there. Okay. Oh, oh, I think I've had this before too. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm like feeling it. It's uh, um, it's like an onion ring, like a funyun kind of chip. Mm. Um, mm, it tastes like, mm, it's like a spicy Funyun. Yes, you are totally <laughs> oh 100% my God. right. I didn't know this, but Funyuns has a new brand wow. of Flamin' Hot Funyuns. Yeah. You know, the, the Flamin' Hot Cheetos yeah. empire is vast, mm-hmm. and they have influenced all corners of the snack market. You can now get Flamin' Hot varieties of so many things. Including Funyuns. And you know, Funyuns is like a childhood favorite of mine. Oh, really? Yeah. I used to love eating them, eating Funyuns with um, fudgesicles. Okay, that sounds disgusting. Because the friend of mine used to work at a gas station and I would go and hang out and I would just eat all the snacks for free and I would do Funyuns and fudgesicles. It was the best. Um, I've never had a Funyun before. It is so yummy, but this is kind of intense. Not in a t- terrible way. It's just that this makes me miss like the regular Funyun flavor. Should, should I try my first ever Funyun? Yes the flame and hot one Ugh. let's see what this tastes like 
Ooh. It's kind of like styrofoam followed by acid. That is <laughs> that is vile. <laughs> that was my first and last funyun. No, no, you have to try the regular ones. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today we're talking about snacks, or really systemic sexism and racism in the food industry. <laughs> and snacks. <laughs> I'm here with chef and writer Soleil Ho. Hi, Soleil. Hi. So, Soleil, how long have you been working in the food industry for now? About a decade. Wow, jeez. Yeah, I waited tables all throughout college just to pay for snack money. So that's very relevant. <laughs> so what I, I know that now you're working as an executive chef here in Portland, but what's your favorite snack? My favorite snack is probably has always been um, dehydrated cuttlefish. It's dehydrated. I have never had dehydrated cuttlefish. It tastes like jerky. I mean, it's, it feels like jerky. It tastes like fish, but it's like beef jerky. It's the best. And you can pull it apart like like string cheese. It's delicious. Um, so you recently wrote a great article for Bitch um, that was analyzing the James Beard Awards. Mm-hmm. And the James Beard Foundation Awards are sort of like the Oscars for the food industry. Right. And can you tell me about sort of your perception of the James Beard Foundation Awards from working as a chef in the food industry and then what you found when you actually started crunching the numbers on who wins the awards? Well, um, it's really hard not to notice when you're working in the industry, especially as a woman. You notice that... I mean, for the most part, I've usually been the only woman in the kitchen besides the pastry chef, who has usually been a woman. Um, And you see those demographics and you see who gets those promotions and who gets segregated into certain jobs. Um, Because there is very real like gender segregation and racial segregation in the food industry. Um, And so you see the people who get funneled into the more um, visible, lauded positions are white men. And so the James Beard Foundation Awards happen every spring. They're a really big deal for the food industry. Um, what what did you notice about the awards specifically that, that made you decide to look into them further? At least in the past few years, when they've started taking notice, um, it's hovered around 20% of uh, women in the overall nominee pool. Um, wow. As far so, as so, who so wins. For, yeah, yeah so for all these awards... The percent of women who are nominated for these super prestigious awards, it's only 20 percent of the of the nominee pool. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Even though I, I think we, we say earlier in the show, but women make up 52 percent of the restaurant industry. Yes. Um, but it's like I said before, um, they don't get this. They don't get the jobs that get the awards, um, which is really unfortunate. But I mean, the awards are not the be all end all of everything, but. Um, as Chef Amanda Cohen, who cooks at Dirt Candy, it's her restaurant in New York, um, says the awards, in a sense, determine who gets investors attracted to them and who gets written about and who gets to enter that hype cycle that allows you to do your own thing and have independence and open your own restaurant and have that sort of financial flexibility and, and um, mobility. And so when it's distributed unfairly, um, it has very real results. Right. It's kind of like the Oscars where a large percentage (laughs) of the population just want to be like, write them off and ignore them entirely. But who wins and who's nominated has real world impacts for those people. And and being nominated or winning a James Beard Award can change your life and can change the financial status of your restaurant. Right. You can kind of compare it to um, the Oscars in that the casting directors will look, you know, for the kind of actor who will win an Oscar. Yeah. and you can compare that to investors who are going to look for the kind of chef who will win a James Beard Award. And so you actually took the nominee list this year. The James Beard Awards don't happen until May, but you took the nominee list from this year and put it into a big spreadsheet and actually <laughs> crunched the numbers on the gender breakdown as well as the racial breakdown as best you could of the nominees. So yes. what did you find when you actually crunched the numbers? Um, I found that compared to the real um, ratios um, of like, race and ethnicity in the American food industry, white nominees far outpaced um, the number of nominees who are people of color. In the James Beard Award nominee pool, about 80% were white and about 20% were people of color. 
Whereas in the food industry at large, it's more like 50-50. Yeah. So, so in, the, in the food industry at large, there's lots of people of color who are working in restaurants and making food, but they're not the ones who are getting these prestigious awards. Right. And that, that relates actually to, um, I mean, this, this relates to a larger issue around celebrating cuisine and celebrating the food that's made by white male chefs when the food made by women or people of color isn't getting the same kind of recognition. Right. You wrote an article that um, we're going to share now that you're going to read <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, featured in the 20th anniversary print issue of Bitch that touches on a lot of these same themes around celebrating cuisine that's made by white people while overlooking and not appreciating the same foods when they're made by people of color or who are actually from the cultures that, um, that the white chefs then rip off. That article is called Craving the Other, and it's reprinted, like I said, in the 20th anniversary print issue of Bitch. Um, you wrote this article a couple years ago initially. Yes, I think in 2013, right? Yeah, and it's, it's weird how um, resonant it remains. So the essay that you're going to share with us is called Craving the Other. It was originally published in 2013. It's reprinted in the 20th anniversary print issue of Bitch, which is out right now. Um, so they take it away. Craving the Other. For a long time, Vietnamese food made me uncomfortable. It was brothy, weirdly fishy, and full of the gross animal parts that other people didn't seem to want. It was too complicated. I wanted the straightforward, prefabricated snacks that I saw on television. Bagel bites, Pop-Tarts, chicken nuggets. When my grandmother babysat me, she would make tiny concessions, preparing rice bowls with chopped turkey cold cuts for me, while everyone else got caramelized pork. I would make my own bagel bites by toasting normal-sized bagels and topping them with Chinese sausage and a dash of sriracha. My favorite snack was a weird kind of fusion, a slice of nutrient-void Wonder Bread sprinkled with a few dashes of Maggie sauce, an ultra-plain proto-bun mi that I came up with while rummaging through my grandmother's pantry. In our food-centric family, I was the barbarian who demanded twisted simulacra of my grandmother's masterpieces perverted so far beyond the pungent, saucy originals that they looked like the national cuisine of a country that didn't exist. When I entered my first year of college in Iowa, a strange pattern began to emerge as I got to know my classmates. Oh, you're Vietnamese, they'd ask. I love pho. And then the whispered question, am I saying that right? The same people who would have made fun of me for bringing a stinky rice noodle salad to school 10 years ago talked to me as if I were the gatekeeper to some hidden temple that they had discovered on their own. Pho was a shortcut for them, a way to tell me that they knew about my culture and our soupy ways without me having to tell them. I would hear this again and again from that point on. I'm Vietnamese. They love pho. I told people to pronounce it a different way each time they asked, knowing that they would immediately march over to their racially homogenous group of friends to correct them with the authentic way to pronounce their favorite dish. I'm sure that they were happy to learn a little bit about my family's culture, but I found their motivations for doing so suspect. What can one say in response? Oh, you're white? I love tuna salad. It sounds ridiculous, mostly because no one cares if a second-generation immigrant likes American food. Rather, the burden of fluency with American culture puts a unique pressure on the immigrant kid. I paid attention during playdates with my childhood friends when parents would serve pulled pork sandwiches and coleslaw for lunch. It took me a long time to understand the appeal of mayonnaise, which, as a non-cream, non-cheese, non-sauce, perplexed the hell out of me. From watching my friends, I learned to put the coleslaw in the sandwich and sop the bread in the stray puddles of sauce in between bites. There's a similar kind of self-checking that occurs when I take people out to Vietnamese restaurants. Through unsubtle side glances, they watch me for behavioral cues, noting how and if I use various condiments and garnishes so they can report back to their friends and family that they learned how to eat this food the real way from a real, live Vietnamese friend. Their desire to be true global citizens, eaters without borders, lies behind their studious gazes. When I go to contemporary Asian restaurants, like Wolfgang Puck's now-shuttered 2021 in Minneapolis and Jean-Georges von Richten's Spice Market in New York City, the entrees are always in the $16 to $35 range. 
and the only identifiable person of color in the kitchen is the dishwasher. The menus usually include little blurbs about how the chef's backpacked in the steaming jungles of the Far East, undoubtedly stuffing all the herbs and spices they can fit into said backpacks along the way for research purposes. And we're so inspired by the smiling faces of the very generous natives, of which there are plenty of tasteful black and white photos on the walls, by the way, and the hospitality, oh, the hospitality, that they decided the best way to really crystallize their life-changing experience was to go back home and sterilize the cuisine they experienced by putting some micro cilantro on a $20 curry to make it worthy of the everyday American sophisticate. American chefs like to talk fancy talk about elevating or refining third world cuisines, a rhetoric that brings to mind the mission civilisatrice that Europe took on to justify violent takeovers of those same cuisines countries of origin. In its publicity materials, Spice Market uses explicitly objectifying language to describe the culture they're appropriating. And I quote, a timeless pan to Southeast Asian sensuality, Spice Market titillates Manhattan's meatpacking district with Jean-Georges von Richten's piquant elevations of the region's street cuisine. The positioning of Western aesthetics as superior to all the rest is an expression of the idea that no culture has value unless it has been improved by the West's Midas touch. If a dish hasn't been eaten or reimagined by a white person, does it really exist? Andrew Zimmern, host of Bizarre Foods, often claims that to know a culture, you must eat their food. I've eaten Vietnamese food my whole life, but there's still so much I don't understand about my family and the place we came from. I don't know why we can be so reticent, yet so emotional. Why Catholicism, the invader's religion, still has such a hold on us. Why we laugh so hard even at times when there's not much to laugh about. After endless plates of kombi, bunseo, and chayal, I still don't know what my grandmother thinks about when she prays. Others appear to be on a similar quest for knowledge, though they seem to have fewer questions than answers. Like a plague of cultural locusts, foodies, chow hounders, and food writers flit from bibimbap to roti kanai, fetishizing each dish as some adventure in a bowl, and using it as a springboard to generalize about a given culture's sense of family and community, lack of pretense, passion, and spirituality. Eventually, a hole in the wall reaches critical white Instagrammer mass, and the swarm moves on to its next discovery, decrying the former fixation's loss of authenticity. The foodie's cultural cachet depends on being the only white American in the room, braving inhumane spice levels and possible food poisoning in order to share with you the proper way to handle Ethiopian injera bread. But they can't cash in on it unless they share their discoveries with someone else, thereby jeopardizing that sense of exclusivity. Thus, happiness tends to elude the cultural foodie. Why am I being such a sourpuss about people who just want to show appreciation for another culture? Isn't the embrace of multiculturalism through food a beautiful expression of a post-racial Malot? Aren't I being the true racist here? Item. Asian Girls by Day Above Ground, a wannabe Red Hot Chili Peppers bro band, is full of references to East Asian food, juxtaposed with violently misogynistic yellow fever lyrics. And I quote, I love your sticky rice, butt-fucking all night, Korean barbecue, bitch, I love you. End quote. Yum. When criticism of the song surfaced in summer of 2013, the band insisted that the charges of racism were ridiculous because none of them were racists, that their many Asian friends thought it was hilarious, and that, at its heart, the song was about sharing their love for the culture. You know what they say, if you really love something, treat it with flippant disrespect. Item, Alton Brown's Asian Noodles episode of Good Eats takes us on an educational trip to the typical Asian American grocery store by having its host travel through a lengthy underground tunnel that is a visual echo of the idea of digging a hole to China. He emerges onto a set decorated with noodles, a red and gold Chinese scroll, and that typically chinky, erhu music that so often plagues any mention of Asia in media. Also on the set is a bearded white man wearing a kimono and a sumo topknot wig who acts out the stereotype of the severe Asian-American grocery store clerk. 
As Brown shares his vast pool of knowledge with the viewer, the clerk harasses him in fake Japanese. Clearly, knowing a lot about Asian food does not preclude one's ability to be an asshole about it anyway. These items speak to the Westerner as cultural connoisseur and authority, a theme that is shown like a brilliant Angolan diamond in the imperialist imagination ever since Marco Polo first rushed back to Europe to show off the crazy Chinese ice cream that he discovered on his travels. I don't doubt that Day Above Ground and Alton Brown love bulgogi and soba and want more people to enjoy them, but that kind of appreciation certainly doesn't seem to have advanced their understanding of the Asian-American experience beyond damaging and objectifying generalities. Their commonality is their insistence on appreciating a culture that exists mostly in their heads. They share a nostalgia for someone else's life. Nostalgia traps the things you love in glass jars, letting you appreciate their arrested beauty until they finally die of boredom or starvation. The sought-after object cannot move on from you or depart from the fixed impression that you have imposed upon it. After all, a thing can't be authentic if it's allowed the power to change. Robbed of its ability to evolve on its own, the only way such a thing can venture into the future is as an accessory worn by someone who can. The pho you had at a dirty little street stall in Saigon, or the fresh goat's milk you tasted in Crete as a child, may both be beautiful in and of themselves. But their value diminishes if they're allowed an ounce of banality. In order for them to make you look like a more exciting, more interesting person, they must remain firmly outside the realm of the mundane. All of this makes the experience of the immigrants' Americanized children particularly head-scratching. We're appreciated for our usefulness in giving our foodie friends a window into the off-menu life of our cuisines. But the interest usually stops there. When I tell white Americans about the Maggie and margarine sandwiches and cold-cut rice bowls that I used to eat, they tend to wrinkle their noses and wonder aloud why I would reject my grandmother's incredible, authentic Vietnamese food for such bastardizations. What I don't tell them is, it's because I wanted to be like you. We live in a time where the discriminating American foodie has an ever-evolving list of essentials in their pantry. Raz al Hanout, shrimp paste, lemongrass, fresh turmeric. With a hugely expanded palette of flavors, you can experiment with these ingredients in ways that used to be possible only for medieval kings and nobles who spent fortunes on chests of spices from the Orient. By putting leaves of cabbage kimchi on a slice of pizza, you're destroying the notion of the nation-state and unknowingly mimicking the ways in which many Korean-American children took their first awkward steps into assimilation, one bite at a time, until they stopped using kimchi altogether. Over time, you grow to associate nationalities with the quaint little restaurants that you used to frequent before they were demolished and replaced with soulless, Americanized joints. You look at a map of the world and point a finger to Mongolia. Really good barbecue. El Salvador. Mmm, pupusas. Vietnam. I love pho. When you divorce a food from its place and time, you can ignore global civil unrest and natural disasters. Knowing, as you do, the world's cultural products will always find safe harbor in your precious, precious mouth. That was writer and chef Soleil Ho. Very exciting news. Soleil is starting a new podcast all about race and food with friend and journalist Zahir Jamohammed. It's called Racist Sandwich and launches in May. Keep an eye out for it. In the meantime, you can follow their podcast on Twitter at Race and Food. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about snacks, or really systemic racism and sexism in the food industry, and snacks. Okay, we're back for round three of Snack Judgment, <laughs> where, where Amy Lamb, with her eyes closed, is tasting various <laughs> snacks and telling us her verdict on what she thinks they are. These are all relatively new, newly invented foods, the cutting edge of the culinary snack scene. Because these are all foods that I didn't know about. They didn't exist when I was a kid. 
So you ready for snack number three, Amy? Yes, I'm one for two, so. Yeah, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. Okay, this last snack, let me just, how you can hear it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Gonna open it up. Okay, reach your hand right in there. Oh, okay. It's like little things, so I grabbed a few. What do they feel like? They feel kind of like round, rounder corn nuts or something. Let's see what they taste like. Mmm. Mmm. It's like a little sweet, but there's like a very distinct flavor that I've eaten before. So what's what's your final verdict? Um, it's kind of like savory, but then it ha there's like a lot of like sweetness at the end. Um, huh, I'm stomped. All right, open your eyes. This is sweet cinnamon chickpeas. Did you know that these existed? <laughs> no idea. Okay. This is out of my snack game. Yes. For sure. Okay. These are crispy, crunchy chickpeas by a company called The Good Bean. And they're sweet cinnamon, Sumatra cinnamon, and a hint of vanilla. I think these are basically like yuppie corn nuts. Yes. Yeah. Corn nuts are way better. These are like corn nuts <laughs> if you don't want to buy corn nuts. You yeah. buy uh, these chickpeas covered in Sumatra cinnamon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get the corn nuts, people. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting by the roadside on a summer day. Chatting with my messmates, passing time away. Sitting in the shadow underneath the tree. Goodness, how delicious eating goober peas. Peas, 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 eating goober peas. Peas, 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 eating goober peas. You're listening to Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. I go out to eat a lot, kind of an embarrassing amount. Burritos, tacos, curry, ramen. I just don't like spending time making those delicious foods in my own kitchen. But when I go out to eat, I don't always think about who is in the kitchen. I order the food, it appears in front of me, who knows who actually prepared it. Chefs can sometimes be pretty invisible. And even though I go to the same takeout places over and over and over and over, I don't know the names of people who actually cook my favorite meals. I don't know what they're like. Writer Sayaka Matsuoka has thought about this dynamic a lot. This invisibility makes it easy for consumers to overlook race and gender dynamics in the kitchen. Sayaka brings us this story about the life of one chef, sushi chef Mikiko Ando. Growing up in a Japanese household, I was spoiled with good food almost every meal. My dad, who was a trained sushi chef, ran a fast food business during the day. On special occasions, he made sushi for me, my sister, and my mom. Soon, sushi became my favorite food. Sometimes when he had the resources, he would make us the king of all sushi meals, chirashi sushi. Simply put, it's a sushi bowl. You start with your sweet, vinegary sushi rice on the bottom and work your way up, covering every inch of the white rice with fresh slices of fish. Some places include sweet egg or vegetables in their bowls. One time, a restaurant I went to had covered their chirashi rice with furikake or rice seasoning. My dad doesn't mess with all that. Instead, he expertly cuts perfectly thick pieces of savory fish and lays it on top of the layer of rice in a neat and colorful circle. Bright orange pieces of salmon glistening with fat lay next to strips of sweet shrimp and raw scallops. Across the way, sweet and savory barbecued pieces of eel share space with pink slices of tuna and yellowtail. In the middle, a lump of masago or a type of fish roe tops off the vibrant assortment. It makes my mouth water just thinking about it. Once, my parents sent me home with fresh fish to make my own shirashi and it didn't even come close. I couldn't even cut the fish right. There's something about sushi made by someone who has studied the art for decades. Since my dad started my sushi obsession, I've eaten at hundreds of sushi restaurants all over the country. As I got older, I realized that every single restaurant I went to had one thing in common. The sushi chefs were always male. I realized that I had never seen, met, or even heard of a female sushi chef. As I did some research, I learned that there's a strong taboo against women becoming sushi chefs. Male chefs constantly say that women make worse sushi chefs because our menstrual cycles affect our sense of taste and because we have a higher core body temperature that makes it impossible to work with fresh, cold fish. Training to be a sushi chef can take a decade and you need a mentor, so the retrograde thinking of male sushi chefs keeps women out of the industry. 
Among Japan's 35,000 sushi chefs, only a handful are women. But times are changing, slowly. A group of young female sushi chefs started their own restaurant in Tokyo a few years ago. In the United States, the situation isn't much different. There are only a few female sushi chefs in the country. One of them is Mikiko Ando. Born in Hokkaido, Japan, she came to the United States after high school. She planned on going to art school, but instead met a man and got married. When the relationship became abusive, they separated. As a single parent now struggling to support her young son, Mikiko took a job as a waitress at a Japanese restaurant. Right off the bat, she got interested in becoming a chef rather than a server. Sushi, she says, is like art. What, what they make is kind of, you know, pretty and uh, how they cut in fruition. I was very interested. And, um, but that time, that was like 30, over 30 years ago. Okay. So they say no woman can become sushi chef because women have a menstrual cycle. So for 10 years, Mikiko waited tables and managed restaurants. Then, one day, she was working for a Japanese restaurant owned by a woman who decided to give her a shot. She, she and her husband come up to me, come to me and say, uh, Mikiko, are you interested in becoming a sushi chef? Wow. I, I said, yeah, I wanted to do it a long, long time ago. Mikiko started training to be a sushi chef, just like she had been dreaming for 10 years. Some of the male chefs weren't too happy about that. Sometimes when new workers would come in for job interviews, they'd see her in the kitchen and refuse the job. But the chefs weren't the only ones that gave Mikiko a hard time. She remembers one time when a Japanese man came in and was seated in front of her at the sushi bar by the hostess. He immediately asked to be moved and refused to eat anything Mikiko made. However, this didn't faze Mikiko. She simply said to the man, you're missing something good. Mikiko has a classic style in the kitchen. She doesn't do wild specialty rolls a lot of American sushi consumers are probably familiar with. Instead, she sticks to Edomaya style, a traditional Japanese approach to sushi that she spices up with her own little twists. Being sushi chef is take lifetime. I'm still learning. Mikiko worked for years as the head sushi chef at a restaurant in the San Francisco Ferry Building. Now, she's the executive chef at Q Sushi in Westlake Village, California. Not everyone has come around to female sushi chefs, but Mikiko has some support. Her family back in Japan is proud of her. She'd love to move back at some point, but sadly, the discrimination against women in the sushi kitchen would make it very hard for her to get a job. Oh yeah, they're so surprised. All families in Japan, they're so proud of me. I wanted to go over there, spend time with my family, so I wanted to apply a job there as sushi chef. Mm -hmm. My family said no, <laughs> especially I'm from countryside. No, no, no one gonna hire you at you know sushi restaurant here. So I said okay. When she faces hard realities and sexist pushback, Mikiko works even harder, taking pride in what she does best serving up delicious sushi and training the next generation of sushi chefs. And I love teaching new chefs. Whoever have a passion for chef or sushi chef, when I teach things, new things, they are I like up. And you know, I love teaching people who has passion for food. That was Sayaka Matsuoka, interviewing sushi chef Mikiko Ando. So this is Sarah, here with our victim, Amy Lamb again, for our final round of Snack Judgment, the game we're playing in this episode, where Amy has her eyes closed and she's going to sample... Um, snacks that didn't exist when we were kids mm -hmm. and try and figure out what they are. I volunteer to be a snack tribute. Okay, so your final snack, Amy, is actually a liquid. Oh, what? I'm like spooked right now. <laughs> okay. 
All right. That's the sound of me opening this this frosty cold can of something. All oh, right. Put okay. out your hand. Okay. I hope you don't spill this on yourself while you drink it. <laughs> me too. <laughs> that's the microphone in your way. Okay. I was like, what's going on? Okay. Okay. I, th- I thought it was going to be fizzy, but it isn't. Ooh. Ooh. It tastes um, it's like a coffee drink. Um, It just tastes like a very sugary coffee drink. Any other flavor overtones there? Mm, okay. Don't tell me it's some kind of like Red Bull coffee drink because I'm going to like puke in my mouth a little. Start puking because oh, it is. No, 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 no. <laughs> This is a, a monster brand energy drink that's called Loca Mocha, the Java, it's Java plus monster energy drink. It's brown. It has a scratch on the front. I'm sorry I made you drink this. Yeah, you're cruel. That was a big trick. I do not volunteer to be a tribute anymore. (laughs) Give me an RC cola and a moonpine play maple on the hill. I'll catch that freight train on the fly and leave my corn down at the mill. Cause I sold my cab for a dollar and a half. So, brother, I can pay my bill. Give me an RC cola and a moon. Hopefully this show has given you a lot to chew on, from contemplating the wild world of recently invented snacks to the way gender and race dynamics affect who makes your food and who gets recognized as talented chefs. The next time you go to a restaurant, think about who's back in the kitchen and all the unseen work that goes into dishing up your delicious dinner. This episode of Propaganda is sponsored by She's Beautiful When She's Angry. The first documentary about the women's liberation movement, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, is a critically acclaimed film that's now available to own. Featuring the women who made change happen, featuring the women who made change happen then, and continue to bang the drum of equality today. Look for it on DVD, iTunes, Amazon Video, and wherever you watch movies. She's Beautiful When She's Angry.com. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>